Hello, everyone, and thanks again for joining us at the 2023 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Evan Lefkowitz. I'm a first-year MBA student at MIT Sloan, and it is my pleasure to introduce this panel, Start Me Up, How New Leagues Are Innovating Sports and Capturing Fans. Our panelists today are Caitlin Gao, CEO and co-founder of Love, also known as League One Volleyball, Andrew Sittenberg, Chief Operating Officer of Premier League Lacrosse, Joanna Boynton, Chair, board member for the PHF, and principal owner of the defending champion, Boston Pride, <laughs> CEO and co-founder of Athletes Unlimited, John Patrickoff, and our panel today will be moderated by Shira Springer, MIT Sloan lecturer and journalist. The panel will run for 45 minutes and we will leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Please submit questions on Twitter using the hashtag new leagues. Questions will then be selected by the moderator. With that, I'll turn it over to Shira. Thank you, Evan, and thank you to the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference for hosting us. Thank you all for being here, and thank you to our panelists. Uh, we are here, as Evan said, to talk about new leagues and innovation. And as a way of introducing your league, I'd like you to tell us something that you've done or a decision that you've made that you've thought of or see as particularly innovative. So John, I'm gonna start with you, um, but before we dig in, I have to say happy anniversary. Uh, to John because it was three years ago today on March 3rd 2020 that in a competitive advantage talk at this conference he unveiled all of the innovative ideas that were going to go into um, Athletes Unlimited. Also another congratulations um, yesterday uh, Fast Company named you uh, one of the most innovative companies and it's the first time a women's sports league has gotten that recognition. And you do a lot. You know, you have your player executive committee, uh, a unique scoring system, the leaderboard, um, the way you situate the teams for five-week seasons in one place. But pick one. Pick <laughs> one innovation or innovative element well, uh, that you're most proud of. Thanks, Shira. Thank you so much for that. It's great to be here. Um, as Shira said, uh, I unveiled the Athletes Unlimited to the public I'm, um, in March of 2020, right here. Um, but it was in 2019 that I'd come and was sitting in the audience and was thinking about the idea behind Athletes Unlimited, envisioning what we might present in 2020. So it's exciting to be on this this uh, this journey and to be on stage and be back here. Um, Athletes Unlimited is a network of professional women's sports leagues. We run the pro volleyball, pro lacrosse, pro softball, and a pro basketball league uh, here in the US. And it's been an amazing journey. We've run 10 seasons over the last three years. Uh, you mentioned a number of innovations, and we really have rethought uh, many aspects of the way uh, a pro league can be organized. But probably the most fundamental innovation uh, was something that we really uh, came upon in 2019 as we were in the planning stages was that we started to think about what we wanted to create. And as part of that process, we started meeting with the athletes in each of these sports, talking to them about what was important to them, what meant, uh, what they thought a pro league should look like. And out of those really ad hoc meetings, uh, we came to the conclusion that if we were gonna go start something in, in pro sports, uh, we should partner with the athletes at every level. And uh, it seems like such a simple idea, but I can tell you, I don't think it had ever been done before. We did that in, in, in 2019 and then in 2020. So that's really been the major innovation. We have athletes on the board of directors and each league we have a, a player executive committee. Uh, I meet with the player executive committee along with some of our other executives every week and we go through every single decision uh, that 
affects the league, what happens on the court and off the court with the players, uh, in, and so far as the players that actually get recruited to come play in the league are decided upon by that player executive committee. So there's no GMs, there's no coaches. Athletes are really leading, uh, leading the way, and I think that's probably the biggest innovation, and uh, I'm hopeful that it's had an impact on kind of what's come since, uh, since we announced in 2020, and hope it will continue to impact the, the sports landscape. Thank you, Joanna. Jojo, um, the PHF is, is rebranding um, at this point. You're looking to create a, a more professional ecosystem, a more professional culture for women's professional ice hockey. And um, as your commissioner has told us, Reagan Carey has told us, cut through the clutter. Um, part of that, like AU, is getting the players more involved, more involved in decision-making and marketing of the league. Can you talk about some of the ways you are being innovative with the rebranding as well as player involvement. Yeah, thanks, and thank you for um, including me today. I'm actually pinch hitting for Reagan because she missed her connecting flight, but uh, that's a real gift for me, so I get to talk about what I love and am passionate about. Um, and as John's pointed out, and she was asking, um, the players really have been and will always be sort of the focus and the priority for us in, in our league. Um, 10 months ago, we hired Reagan Carey as our commissioner, and Basically, that afforded us a, a, an opportunity to look at um, issues with salaries and benefits and playing facilities. Um, and today, I can sit here and proudly say that with the you know, support of really, really um, supportive owners and collaborative owners, that we have now announced for next season the highest salary cap for any women's professional team, league, I should say. Um, and we are proud to say that now we have players that can earn a livable wage playing this game. Um, and uh, you know we see this as just the beginning of amazing growth, but the players have always been at the center of that and the player experience and how their um, you know, professional experience grows over time is with their voice. Um, and I think very similar to what Athletes Unlimited is doing um, in that way of, of including them in the conversation. Um, and we have amazing athletes, and um, so we just think there's a really bright future for all this. And um, that's the, those are some of the things that we've been able to do in just the last 10 months. So, mm, thank you, Andrew. Uh, by the very nature of your founding, you're founded by Paul Rabel, one of the most successful cross players of all time, and his brother Mike. So you automatically have that sort of in your DNA, that player-centric focus. You also have a touring model. Tell us a little bit about what the Premier Lacrosse League is doing that you find most. Innovative. Absolutely. Uh, excited to be here, Shira. And I think there are a couple things that come to mind, but, but if I step back and I think about what kind of allows us to be innovative, um, and it sounds simple, but compared to a big four league or where pro lacrosse has been, I think us being single entity and centrally owned has really been the facilitator for us to innovate. Um, it allows us to be flexible in our decision making. It let, allows us to be nimble um, in reacting to kind of current climate. Um, I was speaking with Jojo right before we came up here about how we all reacted to COVID, um, both in sports, but the world. And um, when we were getting, we wanted to play, but we wanted to play if it was safe, right? And, and I think when we got the feeling that, hey, we, we had done our diligence and there was a path to play that summer, um, us being single entity allowed us to react quickly. It allowed us to capitalize on NBC windows that were given up because the Olympics were canceled. It allows us to make a quick decision to bring lacrosse back. And so um, it, it sounds simple, and I know we're not the only league that's single entity or centrally owned, but I really think that's kind of the main build, building block that um, allows us to be innovative because we are able to stay agile and um, make decisions that kind of react to the times. 
Got it. And Caitlin with League One Volleyball, love, um, love the acronym. Um, it's taking a different league building approach, right? You're going from the club level on up, hoping to develop that pipeline um, for a professional volleyball league. Can you talk to us also about what you have done with your model and your, the way you are structured to um, foster, encourage, spark innovation? Absolutely. Um, it's just exciting to be able to share with everyone the progress that we already made over the last three years in really looking at how do we address this super underserved market, which is volleyball. It's one of the biggest uh, women's sport, really biggest sport in the country, number six in fandom, um, only trailing behind you know, the big four plus, um, plus NHL. So it's really important that we really think about the space differently as well, because when you look at a sport like volleyball, it is naturally a female-led sport where it doesn't really get that same comparison effect to its male counterpart. And we find that to be an incredible opportunity for us to think about how do you construct a league, or more importantly, how do you put together an ecosystem to really serve this market where there's so many engaged fans already? And where are they currently? Most of them are actually playing in clubs. And that's the youth level. That's the under 18 level that's really been sort of catapulted into popularity as being the number one sport for high school age girls in the country. And so the way that we addressed it is actually going straight into that community first. So if you think about it, all of the traditional leagues that you think about have really started tops down. So you build it and hopefully they'll come. And for some of the major leagues over a few decades, they did come and that's fantastic. For us, as we looked at how do we potentially avoid some of the pitfalls of new startup leagues that don't quite make it, um, we decided we should go after the fandom and the consumer base first. So over the last three years, we've been really busy at aggregating some of the best youth clubs in the country to come together. And what we're doing is we're really laying that foundation and making sure that we have the consumer and the fan base so that when we do start to serve them, whether it's with the best pro league in the world for volleyball or whether it's merch, if you think about experiential, physical, and digital products like media and content, we really believe that having started with this incredible foundation of youth athletes and plus their parents and the alumni that came from that club and have that sense of belonging and identity with that club, it creates such an incredible foundation for whatever we launch. Um, and I'm excited to say that, you know, we're really marching towards that end of 2024 for post-Paris launch so that our best players get to come back to a league of them, their own. Sounds great and looking forward to that launch in late 2024 after Paris. Something Andy said though caught my ear about the, the ability to be nimble and that it starts with the decision-making process. And you know, for you, it's that single entity. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious if, if all or some of you would like to give some insight into the decision-making, how you make decisions, because that's key. I think you, you nailed it, Andy. That's key. Being able to be innovative depends on having a, a nimble leadership and organizational structure. Um, I see a lot of nodding heads, <laughs> so I'm going to assume that everybody can, can speak to that. Um, why don't we start with John and then give others time to... Yeah, so, so um, I mean, like PLL, we are a single entity structure, so we run all four leagues uh, under one, one organizational structure. Um, players have uh, 
have profit participation in all of the leagues across them and long-term profit participation. And so I think that alignment's great. I think that what we've been able to do as a result is share a lot of learnings across four sports um, that hasn't historically happened in sports. So there's a lot of benefit there and we don't have that layer of owners and GMs and a lot of that kind of front office. Uh, we don't have a lot of those port boardroom or board of governors dynamics that I do think is, is can be inefficient. The one thing I will say though is um, it's important to be nimble, but in this day and age, it is incredibly important to be inclusive in your decision making. And so I actually say at Athletes Unlimited, some of our decisions actually take us a little bit longer because we work so closely with the players. So there's very little I will do as the CEO of the company that will happen without participation of a lot of our staff members and team members and the participation of the player executive committee and more. And I would say that's the caution I would give so that being nimble is great, but if anybody thinks they can be a single member CEO or one decision maker and try to make decisions in this day and age, I think it's a huge, huge mistake. Um, and I think that's what, you know, has historically people have wanted to avoid. And I will tell you, we even have some people who come into our organization and say, John, like, this has taken us a long time to, like, make this what seems like a simple decision. And I say, that's the trade-off. Like, I'd much rather bring the players in and the player executive committee in in relatively small decisions and avoid those pitfalls that, um, you know, come if you don't do that. So I'd say it's a real balance between being quick and nimble and being inclusive and, and thoughtful. That, that trade-off, I like that, and the balancing act that you have to do. Joanna, what's the balancing act like in the PA? Well, we're, we might be a little bit of an outlier because we, are, we probably have more of a hybrid of this model um, with the intention of um, going to uh, private and individual ownership, local ownership of our teams. When we got involved with the league, it had been in existence for five years and it was a single entity league. The way we got involved was we were approached, they were, had decided that they would start to sell the teams to local ownership. Um, so that was the model they were moving towards. And in the course of the last few years, we're more towards that model. Um, yet, I think what we do, and because we're still um, growing, is we, you know, we have regular board calls with the owners and they're very, um, very much still involved in the decision making and they're, their, their connection to the players and the staff are um, such that we, we might not be quite as nimble, but we have the representation and the voices of those local markets, and we have felt that the, the local you know, youth groups and, and brands and, and media get attached to their team, and so that helps us actually grow in those markets um, and so ours is a little bit different in that um, we've, we've segued away from just single entity, but being nimble is key. And I think we're, we're really strategizing and being careful about, you know, as we look to sell teams, who those owners are and that they're of the same mission and values and, um, you know, ready to roll up their sleeves and get to work. So it's a little bit different, um, but we, we, we respect that, like, trying to stay nimble is absolutely cr crucial to, to growing and changing, and we all, I think, probably have tons of energy and ideas that there's just not enough time in the day to execute on, so you got to have people who want to stay in the room and keep working. And do you want to add to your, your nimbleness? Yeah, <laughs> no, I think uh, John and JoJo hit well. I think it's, it balances the right word. Um, so as, as uh, we are a management team that can um, move swiftly, but we also want to balance it off people who know more than we do, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we want to make sure we're 
checking with experts and leaning on people who might look around corners differently or have a different perspective. And so uh, not to overuse the COVID example, right, but we are not going to make a, a decision on a COVID season by ourselves, right? We, we built the COVID committee that we worked with on a week-in, week-out basis. Um, we have a board of directors that we work very closely with um, that um, are like-minded but can offer a different perspective and lens on our decision-making. And so um, I think John's note is the correct one is um, nimble is good, but also being aware of, of your blind spots is important and, and not being too proud to bring in experts and, and bounce off um, what you're considering against the right people to make sure you're landing on the right decision is, is hugely important. Now, Caitlin, you've been patiently nodding in agreement <laughs> down there. No, I love that um, common theme and common thread. And, and what I think that represents is that as new newer leagues or new leagues, we have this opportunity to not necessarily worry about spending as much energy on the inertia of what traditionally has to be done and how do we think about innovation in the way that we think of achieving our ultimate vision. And for love, what's really important when we think about decision making is what's our goal? Our goal is to be synonymous with the sport. Love equals volleyball. In order for that to happen, we are driving lifetime value of this, this consumer, this fandom, so that they start at club, they go into college still feeling the sense of belonging and want to consume, want to engage with the sport, and they can, they can consume pro, and it comes back around, right? So very much sort of that European soccer, you're born into a club, you're born into an identity that you may not have even chosen for yourself. Um, and I think that's, when we think about decision making, in order to really address every step of that, those life stages, you have to think about who's currently there. And for volleyball, there's you know, folks that we want to engage with, whether it's our talented club directors to some of the best coaches in the country at the collegiate level who are commanding NBA level regular season attendance, all the way to what are, you know, what's Athletes Unlimited doing? What, what's going on with the other 48 leagues in the world? How are they going about it? So I think that collective wisdom to learn from others is really, really important as we build out a brand, an ecosystem brand that's looked to address a consumption for life for the sport. Mm -hmm. A little bit later, we're gonna get into that learning from others, that collective wisdom and what you, you and AU are learning from each other. Uh, but right now I wanna pivot a little bit to competition, because I think, you know, honestly, that's <laughs> what this is all about, putting out a product that people want to see and people want to be fans of. And I think, Caitlin, you've used the term, you want to build a tribe around love that people are very, very intimately attached to. So how do you do that is the question. Um, Andrew, I'm going to start with you and the PLL, simply because recently you completed the Championship Series mm -hmm. Sixes. I've got that correct, yep. right? Tournament. And that features the top four teams from the regular season, it's a six-on-six six format. So I'm curious, non-traditional format, yep. to do to a degree, what motivated the PLL to incorporate that, mm -hmm. the sixes, that format, and, and what do you see of the, the, as the benefit of that style, putting that out there um, for your fans? Absolutely, um, and so I think taking a step back, uh, since we've started, we've, we've really looked hard at how do we expand in a way that's going to best address our fans, right? Um, and in 2020, that was, adding a seven team in 2021 um, that was merging with the MLL, bringing them under our umbrella and adding an eighth team. Um, but we've always looked at how do we 
how do we add game count? How do we add um, more lacrosse games? Because that's the, the engine that makes the business go. And so uh, we play pretty much every weekend between June and September. Um, but what is a, a property we could add into the calendar that um, our fans would be receptive to? And that was the championship series that we played this past week in Washington, DC. Um, but the big change we made um, was uh, changing it to sixes or six on six lacrosse versus uh, our traditional field game, which is 10 v 10. Um, and, and there are a number of reasons uh, why we went that direction, though we discussed it at length. Um, and first and, and foremost is um, it, it's helping support the Olympic push for the sport. Um, so for those of you who don't know, um, the IOC gave recognition to world lacrosse in two, uh, last year, in 2021, or two years ago, sorry, July 2021, uh, giving recognition to um, world lacrosse, uh, which is a first and important step to hopefully being back in the Olympics as soon as 2028 in LA. Um, and for us, we know how important it is to grow the sport, um, not just domestically, not just at youth level, but internationally. And we know how important an unlock um, Olympics can be for unlocking funds for other countries uh, and growing the sport worldwide. Um, so we wanted to support that version of the game. Uh, but I think if we start to look more inward, um, it was also an interesting test for drawing in new fans for us. Um, I think, like, like all sports, uh, field lacrosse has um, some nuances that I think make it rich as a, as a lacrosse player, lifelong lacrosse player, um, and, and some deeper strategy associated with it, but might not be intuitive to the average sports fan. Um, and, and sixes kind of um, undoes and makes kind of the sport a little bit more intuitive. So it's um, removes some of the specialization in position. Um, it uh, has a faster shot clock and shorter field. Um, Face-offs are minimized a little bit. Out-of-bounds rules are made a little bit more intuitive. And, and so we wanted to be in a position where we could serve something that was more intuitive to that person watching for the first time. And we heard over and over again across the week, this feels like the NBA. I get it. Like the offense and defense and those strategies feels like the NBA. Um, and the last note I'd make is it's on a similar, uh, similar note is just um, we want to test our rules. Um, when we started in 2019, we made the field shorter, we shortened the shot clock, we shorted the quarter length, quarter length um, and we wanted to make it a more digestible and fun product for our fans. Um, and Sixes was an opportunity to test some of those rules to the extreme. Um, and not that we would take those wholesale into our field game, but what resonated for fans and what can we bring with us uh, during the summer that fans reacted positively to, which I think uh, we're unearthing some of that data now, but we're excited to be in it. Terrific. Um, I'm curious to see what that data says later on down the road. Yeah. Um, and even if there's some you want to share at this point. <laughs> um, but turning to John and uh, all of the men, the, you know, you have tons of unique competition um, elements from the format. We talked about, you know, with the, the, the five-week season, the weekly drafts also, the individual leaderboard. And you've also talked about how players have been instrumental in, in coming up with some of those or refining some of those. But if you could, let us into a little bit of the process for innovating around competition format, basically taking, a, taking team sports and individualizing them to a degree. So if you go back uh, 2018 when I was first thinking about the opportunity in professional women's sports, uh, there had been a lot of leagues that have come and gone by the way on the men's side and the women's side that have failed. And so our thought was that typically what has happened with startup leagues is you basically just 
in the case of women's sports, pinked it and shrinked it, just replicated exactly what's happened in the men's side and replicated it for the women's side. And by the way, most startup leagues have, have kind of followed the formula of others, franchise-based. I give huge credit to Mike and Paul. They were one of the first to think about a touring model and not do a city-based model. I think it was on the, it, their idea was let's do that first and then maybe we'll move towards city-based franchise. We started with a totally different premise. We had a clean sheet of paper, and our thought was that sports fandom today and in the future is going to be driven by individual athletes. I think when you look at young fans, there's still a lot of affiliation with legacy teams that exist in markets, but we really thought the biggest opportunity was to partner with the athletes. So we actually created an entirely new format where players come together, they're drafted onto teams in an individual week, and those four teams play against each other. Players get points based on how well they do and how well their team does, and they move up and down an individual leaderboard that looks like an F1 leaderboard. I love using anything that ties us to Formula One, by the way, nowadays. <laughs> uh, F1 leaderboard or a golf leaderboard, at the end of week one, top four become captains for week two, teams reshuffle, and players continue to accumulate points throughout the season for five weeks. Whoever's at the top of the leaderboard at the end is the winner. So our hope and thought is that fans will connect with an individual athlete, we will do great storytelling around those athletes, give them great game coverage, and that they will build and, and build on that fandom that they've built at the college level um, and, and, and also build with them off the court. So that's our entire theory. It's totally different structure, um, and it's still all about team sports. Most of your points come from how well your team does, but um, it's really a very innovative approach and really, again, changes the way in which we think fandom is heading in the future. And again, this connection between individual athletes, and I think if you think about yourselves or think about certainly younger people in your household or that you know, and you ask them about their favorite team, oftentimes that won't just be the local team in the market. It'll be, you know, it'll be the LA Lakers because LeBron James plays for the LA Lakers or you know, sorry to hit you hard, but it'll be the Tampa Bay, you know, Bucks because Tom Brady plays for the Bucks, and, and it, that's what you see, and uh, that's our bet. Just curious, you, you put this out there, um, you know, this individual leader. How hard was it initially to get uh, player buy-in? So uh, pretty hard uh, early on, um, and actually when I came to Sloan in, in 2020, what I shared was the leaderboard, and for those of you, hopefully there's some, some you know, folks in here who spent a lot of time on, on the analytics side, I would hope. Um, you know, when you think about in baseball, wins above replacement, that is the best proxy, I think, and for, for kind of how do you measure player performance. And so the scoring system we developed tried to replicate war in a very kind of simplistic fashion and um, make it easy for fans to follow. Um, so to me, the players, it, they, they paused. I mean, you know, again, the biggest pause is I love team sports. I'm a team sports player. What are you talking about? I don't want to be competing, you know, I don't think about my own stats. And when we, can, when we show them that most of their points come from how well their team does each game and each week, that really is where the light goes off. And when they play it, they start to love the format. They love the idea of shifting teams on a weekly basis. They love um, the idea that they're kind of in this new competitive format. So it's worked really well. Well, and Caitlin, I know you have signed two Olympians, two volleyball Olympians from the Tokyo Games. I'm curious, you know, this, it, it will launch next year, but how are you navigating getting player buy-in for love? And what, what is appealing to those pro-level athletes? Yeah, it's, um, I know sometimes when we talk so much about what we started with, we forget to say that when we started planning this, we actually thought we would start with pro first. Mm. Um, and of course, uh, you know, as we looked into what models we felt like had the most opportunity to really build something sustainable and commercially viable for the long term, then we went and pivoted into club. But that said, as early as probably the second or third month while we were sitting in front of Zoom, because this is all happening during COVID, as you guys mentioned, um, we thought, just like John said, 
it has to start, the product has to start with the players themselves at the pro level. And so our ambition is certainly bring the highest level of product on the court. And so to do that, we need to engage with the best players. And so when we looked into, you know, how do we bring these players together, we started with our very first Athletes Council. And a lot of those folks are, have been with us for three years, really going into everything from you know, player experience to what is the right product on the ground, you know, on the court, and what is their current experience where they're playing abroad? And what level of competition are they looking for, you know, including on the roster, how do we think about a combination of domestic and international players, right? Because like I said, 48 other leagues are abroad, and every year we send over 300 women to all these other 48 other leagues because there isn't quite an established league here, you know, in addition to um, all the fandom that you already know that they experience from their college years here. So for us, it's about how do we get them engaged from the very beginning? And by the time we'll have launched, it'll been five years in the planning. And with that is a long journey of building trust and building that collaborative dynamic with our players. And happy to say that a few of them actually also invested. So they're actually investors themselves, right? In addition to um, having signed with us and it's really important that we capture what an incredible sort of level of play we already have here domestically. I mean, when you talk to the folks at USAV, we have enough talent in this country to have two Olympic gold medal winning teams on our national teams. That is incredible when you think about that in the context of 900 million fans in the world. So how are we tapping into the best of the best talent to be joining Love? Speaking of the best of the best talent, one of the things that's happened recently with the PHF, it's not just competition format, but it's who you're getting to compete, as we're, we're hearing here. You have opened up a bigger international pipeline, and you are getting players um, from Europe. And as I, as I understand it, your team, Boston and Toronto, have players from the Czech Republic. So I'm just curious if you could talk about the ways in which the PHF is seeking to reach out to players and perhaps gain fans overseas as well, and what the thinking is there. Yeah, it's interesting because everybody, you know, there's a collective like interest in players first mm -hmm. and, and what their experience is, and there's also innovation going on. And I'm impressed with the lacrosse changing the rules. I mean, we come from hockey, it's a pretty traditional you know, game and been that way for a long time and changing some of it is, uh, you know, challenging and risky. Um, and, and yet I think what we're learning, and this is to your point about the players, there's so much talent out there, just you're remarking about the volleyball players, but there just hasn't been the opportunity, access um, and visibility shown to this for these women. And we, you know, we are the only women's professional hockey league and we draw talent in North America and we draw talent from the US and Canada and they're, they're pretty much the most well-known hockey, um, you know, sort of uh, ecosystems. But in Europe and abroad, they're becoming more and more invested in increasing their competitiveness and their talent. And so we've seen the biggest influx this year from Europe. Um, we have Czech Republic, Hungary, um, top talent from Finland, Sweden, even China. Um, and that's because the opportunity affords them um, the, 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 you know, the play at a high level of competition in a season that has games for you know, six months in a regular cadence, and that's great. They go back to play for their national teams 
and they rise up, you know, they bring up the talent level and the interest and the exposure of just growing the game. And I think sort of at the heart of what we do is wanting to grow the game um, for these women. And uh, this has been, you know, just naturally happening as we grow and show more of, uh, to our fans and our brands and our media partners that this is talent and competition level is really exciting entertainment. Um, for all these sports, but so we we're seeing more and more international, which is great for the game overall, mm -hmm. internationally, um, and for when the Olympics come and those kinds of things. I love this thinking around player-driven um, leagues and how much the player is at the center of both decision making and just the entire thought process of what you want to do with your leagues. And I'm curious, hearing all of this, if you are hearing from some of the more established leagues, um, we'll call it the Big Five. I think we all know who's in that group. If you're hearing from some of them asking how can we incorporate some of the innovations, some of the ways in which you are letting players drive the decision making or incorporating players um, on a more equal footing um, when it comes to decision making. Have any of you heard? I see a nodding head, Jojo. Well, I can say what we've got is an increasing partnerships, increasing level partnerships with uh, NHL teams. Mm -hmm. And for example, we played a neutral site game in Pittsburgh with the Penguins' help of supporting, you know, that that um, that event. Um, and they, because the games are so similar, and because um, I think what we're all getting at is how to avoid the pitfalls and some of the things you see in the Big Five. Um, they are more interested in those conversations um, about inclusivity and diversity and, you know, some of the, the, the work that I think is becoming front and center for our leagues and our players that they've come at it from, you know, the other end. It's like now they're interested in being there and how, how do they get there. So I find that we have a lot more of those conversations with some of the NHL counterparts in our cities. So I get to say it, so I'm gonna say it. Um, why not? Um, I think with maybe one exception, I do not think a single big four league, five league, let's put MLS, has reached out to help Athletes Unlimited since day one. Not one. Okay, we have a couple of owners that have, that have invested a little bit of money with us who have other investments in men's teams. But there is not a single team or league that has reached out to be helpful at any level to Athletes Unlimited. With that said, we, are, we have deals with ESPN, we have deals with Nike, we have deals with Gatorade, we have deals with Geico, we have a number of individual investors, but no one has helped. And there's a lot of collaboration that maybe happens along, along the line here with you know, other women's leagues, I would say, and I would give credit to the WNBA. They actually have reached out in a big way, and we now have a new partnership with them that we announced last week, which is awesome and terrific, and I give them a huge credit for thinking in an interview fashion, but I do not think there's any support from existing leagues for, you know, for, for new or emerging leagues. I'm glad to hear it's happening in the NHL. That's awesome, but I don't think it's widespread. I also want to say one other thing, because you know, you're all in the room, you're taking time, you could be doing a lot of other things today. Since 2019, when we started on the women's pro sports side and started with this business plan, um, there has been such a huge and significant investment in women's professional sports. I will say that the, right now we, we're about to have a, an expansion announcement, I'm sure, coming out of the NWSL soon, if you haven't seen. Teams that three years ago were being sold for literally under $2 million will sell for $50 million 
um, in, in, you know, when I think in this next round of expansion. Teams are talked about being at $90 million. The WMBA has raised, a billion, raised money at a billion dollar valuation. So for everyone that's kind of in this room or thinking about opportunities, um, I will strongly encourage you to kind of widen your, your, your kind of perspective. Sports has not been very friendly to innovation. It has not been very friendly to startup leagues, but the world has changed dramatically for a few reasons. One, there's simply more appreciation for the value in pro sports overall, so all boats are rising with that. And two, there's a lot more innovative thinking. There are new ways to reach customers, new ways to build fandom, new ways to connect with people around the world. And so those are opening the gates because it is true. What people will say is startup leaks have failed over time and time again. It is a new world. It is a very different world. And I'll just say that what I've seen in the last three years on the women's sports side has just been absolutely dramatic. And the entry point where, again, if you had been trying to buy into the NWSL you know, three years ago, you could have done it for, you know, a very little money, and today it'll be at 50 to 100, and the investments are going from there. So I'm glad you're in the room, but I will tell you that this is a much friendlier sports world for startups than it was you know, three or four years ago for a lot of those reasons. So are you, Caitlin and, and Andrew, are you finding that as well with love and with PLL, just a, a friendliness to new leagues and yeah, innovation? Yeah, I think um, you know, volleyball is a little bit unique, right, because... Um, a lot of folks have asked me, well, why isn't there actually, given the popularity of it, the participation level, there are 48 million fans and 38 million of the 48 million have touched a ball, participated in volleyball in some way here in the US. And that's an incredible number. Why isn't there already an established full season league? And I think it comes back down to, well, there wasn't actually a men's league for the women to leverage the infrastructure of. And I think that that's one reason for why there isn't one, but also an incredible open greenfield space for us to actually emerge as uniquely female-led. Um, I do agree, you know, I think the environment right now, um, you see this in all consumer businesses. And sports is a consumer business because at the end of the day, you're catering to a fan base who are consumers. And I think the ways to reach that consumer has really changed. It's proliferated in the engagement, whether it's in person, digitally, um, and the combination of the two. And that democratization of access, I do think contribute to how friendly the space is now for innovation to flourish, for us to not have that sort of mentality of you have to build it this way for it to be successful. Um, so I think, one, I'm, I feel very thankful that volleyball is in a space where we are not kind of being compared. It could be naturally female-led, and we will get into men's, we will get into sitting, we will get into beach eventually. I think those are all, it comes back to if you want to be synonymous with the sport, you're not going to restrict yourself to one particular form of that sport because people want to feel belonging, right? And they want to feel belonging 365 days of, of the year. And I do think that, you know, the tides are, are certainly changing with the innovation of consumer behavior that innovation can cater to to really get that engagement. I'm glad you're bringing up engagement because that's where I want to go, fan engagement. And I'm curious about the new and innovative ways that you are pursuing engagement. And one that comes to mind um, has to do with the PLL. You had Fate of a Sport mm -hmm. um, on ESPN+. Plus. If you could, what are, what are some, you know, that? Um, in addition to other initiatives the PLL has pursued when it comes to fan engagement. And then I'll, I'll, we'll talk about the PHF. I know players are running social media accounts and <laughs> we've got storytelling with AU. But let's start with Fate of a Sport and initiatives 
from the PLL? Sure. Um, and I think um, to start, I think PLL and, and going back to kind of first days, um, we always talk about it and, and starting with Paul is um, it's a media company and a pro sports league and that's in the same sentence and not necessarily in that order. Um, and that's been a focus for us since we started. We knew that was going to be core, um, our content and our uh, messaging and storytelling was going to be core to drawing in new fans. Um, and, and hitting on a point John made, Athletes, we, we believe, and our thesis is like, that's what's going to draw fandom, right? Um, teams matter, locations matter, not putting those to the side at all, but we want to put our eggs in the basket against building these players, building these personalities, building these characters. Um, and so um, we, we've done that through a number of ways. Um, one, I think just we, our largest team internally is our content and production team. Um, and they, they do a ton of content over the course of our weekends, right? Um, and they do that for us so we can put them on our owned and operated channels to cut through the clutter. Uh, but we also do it to serve it to our athletes so they can build their own brands. Um, and so we give them tailor-made ready assets to post coming off a weekend so they can continue to speak to their audiences. Um, we broadcast is, is another area where we try to do that. Um, and we, we get really aggressive in terms of miking up our athletes during our games. Um, some of that is one mic, a one-way mic, where our producer or director on a particular broadcast can just tune in, see what they're saying. If it was an exciting play or it was a power play, they can tune in, see what the player was saying. Uh, the more exciting evolution was um, a two-way mic, where our analyst during a game could actually just get into a player's helmet, middle of the game, and say, How'd that goal feel? What happened? What did you see? And it's um, catching that kind of raw reaction has been really important. Um, and, and so I think that ladders to uh, Fate of a Sport, which you mentioned, which is kind of the culmination of, of that thesis. Um, we've been filming everything we do since the day we started. And it wasn't with the idea that, hey, four or five years from now, we're gonna have this documentary, it's gonna be called X. We just knew people would be interested in what's happening behind the scenes in a boardroom, uh, in a meeting with NBC, uh, in a hallway, in a, in a stadium, in a locker room. And so we've been capturing content for since we've started. And, and I think over the last couple of years, um, kind of a narrative started to show and our internal production team and some production partners um, saw a feature length film in that. And so uh, we were very fortunate to uh, get into Tribeca Film Festival uh, and have ESPN bring on the documentary. Um, but really the goal is everything we've been talking about. It's to give fans a, a behind the scenes look at our players, how the league was built um, to build a deeper emotional tie to what we're doing to then hopefully get them to watch a game and, and become fans. Joanne, it seems like that's also part of the, the PHF's philosophy. I mentioned players running social media accounts, but I think there's more getting behind the scenes with the players. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it starts with a, gr a great platform. And with ESPN, you know, we have in streaming our, our, all our games, um, there's a lot of opportunity for storytelling and content. Um, and we have some great production companies in Heartland Group and Vista that have been creating this content to run compelling content, you know, content through the games. Um, in addition, you know, we have very socially savvy players and we give them access, the keys to the social channels and let them test drive it. Um, and that's been a lot of fun. I think they're probably better than some of us older people. Um, and so they, you know, again, developing a relationship really with their fans in these moments um, is really what it's about. There's so much compelling content and we have a few documentaries that are, you know, starting to brew of wanting interest of, you know, really extending this story. Um, so it's been, you know, just increasing interest and I think it's really around storytelling and having connection with the players um, and then and their experiences. 
I don't know, storytelling is sort of a bedrock of, of AU. Yeah, I mean, we do, I, I don't want to repeat actually what these guys said because I think we have very shared philosophies. I would say probably one of the new or different aspects that, that AU brings to the table is that we really are outside of you know, the Olympics, the NCAA, the only pro sports organization that operates in four sports. So one thing that is very different and that we really are building upon is we definitely believe there's a massive volleyball fan base. I mean, I really can't echo enough what Caitlin said. It is a totally... Um, it's really an undiscovered, like, massive audience. And each of these sports has huge followings. Softball has record ratings, gets millions of people watching the College World Series. Lacrosse has done great, um, and, of and of course, basketball. Um, so, so there's huge fan bases, but our theory is also that there are fans that are gonna love Athletes Unlimited, and also, like, multiple sports. And this concept that, like, you as in the NBA or the NFL only operate in your sport top to bottom, I think it, it obviously works very well for them, but we're taking a different approach, which is we really, hopefully, over time, will have fans of Athletes Unlimited Lacrosse become fans of Athletes Unlimited Volleyball because they love the format, because they love our content, because they love our values, because they love who we are. And they also really get excited on the content side by seeing those collaborations. Everybody in this room knows nothing is more fun than seeing one of your favorite sports stars, you know, try out, you know, or, or, or hang out with a friend who's in a different league or try a different sport. And so we have that platform across our 250 pro athletes to do more and more of that collaboration. And I think fans are, you know, that's the most popular content we put out. You mentioning that you're, you and, and Caitlin share a similar thinking when it comes to volleyball and the popularity there, and then I hear the word collaboration. I'm wondering, what is, you know, do you work together? How do you work together? How do you share ideas? Because you are both pursuing, you know, professional volleyball in the U.S. And, and what has, we talked about this, the, the shared wisdom yeah. um, been? I'll go first. Yeah, to say, um, you know, the biggest opportunity we have for volleyball is awareness, right? Um, despite its crazy numbers and, you know, last 50 years of Title IX, that's really, you know, been a catalyst for the popularity at the participation level, yet no main media um, key brands, national level brands addressing it. I, I think you see this dichotomy of how big it is and how underserved it is. And so I find it really exciting that um, folks like AU and Love and, and others have entered the market because to us, that's just rising tides. And that's addressing one of the biggest challenges for the sport so far is not the numbers beneath the surface, is the fact that it hasn't been activated into consumption. And consumption is what differentiates a highly participated sport and a major league sport. And that flip happens. And I think we're realistic in saying like, the more people who are paying attention in the space, the better. And so from the very beginning, you know, folks on our team have been, and myself as well, and John, we've been talking about, you know, how do we bring the best athletes back <laughs> into the US? There's no reason why you can do that well consistently, always in the top three, and having one indoor, outdoor, sitting in Tokyo, entering into the next 12 years of being favorite to win in Paris, and then coming back to LA in 2028, this is, the, this is absolutely the right time for us to really activate you know, that awareness um, and really address that challenge. And so how are we working together in terms of you know, curating um, choices for these athletes to be able to come back to the US to actually play in front of the fan base that they've enjoyed, the support network that they've had in club, and the college numbers speak for themselves right? Um, we know that it's already there, and by working together, we can bring them home. So, um, 
our model is set up to be collaborative with anybody else that's in the space. So we talk about love that you know we, we hope to be collaborative with when they launch. But if you look at the WNBA, um, we run Athletes Unlimited Basketball. It's going on right now. I encourage everyone to tune in tonight on WNBA League Pass uh, if you're not at the Sloan Conference. Um, the WNBA season runs roughly from April to October. About half the players have historically had to go overseas. We all know what has happened uh, internationally with, you know, with Brittany Griner and, and, and how unappealing that is to be away from your family, to be out of the eye. So it was pretty obvious to us we should create a five-week season here in the United States so players could stay, they could stay visible, they could make money um, and um, in, in, you know, improve their game as well. So about half of our players in our basketball league are WNBA players. There's also some others that maybe had retired or wouldn't have played because they wouldn't make a WNBA roster because there's simply not enough spots for all the great players that come out of college or have played the sport. Um, but we want to do that in every sport. We're, we're a five-week season that's complementary. Um, it's a totally new way of thinking about a pro league, but um, it's been done uh, in cricket, for example. If anybody knows about the Indian Premier Cricket League, it's a 10-week season. Players then go and play elsewhere. Um, what's historically happened in, in the sports world is, you know, and PLL went through this, bashing it out with another league and try to kind of uh, basically replace one another. We've decided we should be supplementary, and there's plenty of room uh, and we need more opportunities and more visibility. And if you love volleyball or love women's basketball, you just want more of it. So mm -hmm. we're a complement and, and a collaborator with existing leagues. Sounds great. I also want to say that in a roughly five minutes, we're going to get to audience questions. Um, and uh, um, so we'll get to audience questions shortly. And um, one thing I also want to slip in is that you have announced today an expanded partnership with Nike, Nike, right? exactly. We're really proud. Um, I, I have to just say, um, Nike uh, came on board with Athletes Unlimited as a uniform provider and, and, and supplier uh, in 2020, um, you know, through their commitment to women's sports and took a chance on us as an innovative platform. Um, uh, one of the people who's been really instrumental in that is Nicole Pollack, who's here and part of the Athletes Unlimited team. Um, but over the last few years, Nike's continued to provide um, you know, uniforms and, and supplies. This year and today, we're expanding that relationship, announcing we're expanding that relationship to cover our marketing efforts. And so we are so excited to be expanding our sports, to be reaching more fans, and um, just a huge, huge credit to them. Um, and it's a message to all of us, right, that, that you know, there are companies out there as big as Nike and as important as Nike that are supporting young leagues, supporting innovative leagues. And I think it's an awesome moment for us to, to be able to announce that. Terrific. And I'm actually seeing uh, audience questions come in. Um, and so I am going to, to dig in here. The first one at the top is, what are your thoughts on sports gambling as it relates to your league? I'm, I'm happy to start there. Go ahead. Um, I think uh, for us, um, and I know it's been a thread kind of through a lot of the conversation, uh, but for us, it's just an, it's a new channel and a new avenue to bring in new fans. Um, and, and I think we've approached it and resourced it as such. As soon as it's become legalized, it was a, a hard push internally to get uh, that as present as possible um, for our games. So uh, if you watch our games on, on NBC in the past or ESPN now, um, you'll see in-game um, betting integrations. Um, you'll see, we have a PL Bet social channel um, where we're educating fans on how they can participate on the sports gambling side, but it's really, at the end of the day for us, it's been just an important channel to open up for a new audience um, where someone um, might, might have not tuned into lacrosse game otherwise, but uh, their friend is betting on the game or they think there's an interesting line or uh, an interesting prop that might happen. Um, and I, I'd say the, the second thing I'd add is um, similar to kind of the, the want and the drive to be innovative that we've discussed throughout this panel. Um, we want to do that 
for uh, on the sports gambling side. And so we work aggressively with um, the different partners to set lines and, and give in-game odds that might not be accessible in another sport. So like that novelty alone might draw someone new in. Um, but it's definitely been something we, we focused on since it became an opportunity. So um, it takes so much work, but we are so proud that we're up and running with sports betting um, in all four of our sports. The first time you've ever had you know, lines on a pro US women's volleyball league as an example or otherwise. Um, and um, it's a big deal. We see it exactly the same way as a way to engage fans um, and provide fans. There's a certain expectation, if you're a fan of professional sports, of what that league will do and the ways it'll allow you to engage. And sports betting is now one of those. And so I think it's a huge mistake. And it's, and it's a tell to the fans that you're not a pro league, in my opinion, if you can't do that. So for us, it's been a huge fundamental piece of this. Not everyone's going to you know, bet. We don't, we're not encouraging everyone to bet. But for those that are, it's hugely important. The other really interesting part for us is that um, in addition to being able to bet on the games, um, we also have this leaderboard that I mentioned. And so we want to get fans to think about for the first time, they can see the leaderboard and they can have a, a you know place bets about who's going to end up at the top of the leaderboard and have odds that way. And I think that's a really fun way that fans are going to want to engage with us. Sounds great. I'm going to go on to a, another question, which I think is quite interesting. How has the growth of um, leagues, or is more like a team, uh, like Banana Ball, uh, so the Savannah Bananas, um, <laughs> also they, they mentioned the XFL, um, so a league there, influenced the way that you ha all have tried to grow your leagues, especially in the modern, they're calling, the questioner is calling fad climate. But what has been the influence of either the XFL or the Savannah Bananas? Well, I think a lot of it is, you know, the, the reach now with social media and the building of, you know, a culture and a building of a new brand or um, personality. And I think that that's some of the stuff that we're all, you know, resourcing now to be able to, um, you know, have more access to our personalities and our culture um, and more innovation, XFL, you know, and some of the the differences there um, just demonstrate the interest and it's, I think we're lucky enough to be young enough to, in our history of our leagues and teams to learn from these and how to, you know, how that builds fan engagement, just like gambling. It's building fan engagement and they're out there, the fans are out there and, you know, they just need access to it. Um, and that's just another way of sort of building that awareness. I think the, um, that connection between such an elite level of play at the pro level and the consumer base, the fan base themselves, that distance because of social media and also obviously with in real life events, it's regardless gonna get pulled closer because I think fans expect that. It's no longer kind of, you know, in the 90s and Jordan just seems untouchable. Whereas I do think that more and more fans wanna know these players as real human beings. So in fact, I think there's probably even more interest in behind the scenes, their life story, how they live as human beings in addition to almost superhuman behavior on the court and how the two can possibly connect it, right? So I think you know, for us, the inspiration then becomes, well, we're building this ecosystem where pros and clubs are coexisting and they're in the same community. So how do we bring them closer together? We already have pros that come into our youth clubs. I mean, you really can't be what you can't see. So the fact that they can have in real life experience with some of their role models already, whether it's at the pro level, even though they have to go abroad, or at the college level, which are superstars in these you know, teenage girls' eyes and, and, and boys as well, 
you know, I think that real, real life connection, that authenticity and the bond that you build that doesn't seem so far away and so foreign to them, that's what people already exist, expect now. It's no longer a, an exception. And then we have another question here um, for women's leagues. Are the investors looking for financial returns or are there incentives more toward getting public image impact investment? Um, Jojo, this seems to be a question in many ways <laughs> as an owner. <laughs> yeah, I think Taylor, um, to you. I, I think for us in our league, um, it really is a passion-driven investment, but it coincides currently with this real um, trajectory for women's sports and this sort of inflection point, I think, for um, support and access. And as I think it was John pointing out, the valuations of teams in the NWSL and um, WNBA and those kinds of things are um, now a, an interesting investment. Um, I tend to notice more that the it's an interest in a long-term investment, but what comes with that is a real passion for support of women professional athletes and wanting to be on that ride and be part of supporting that because they're they value those the, the, it's values driven and mission driven as well. Got it. Do John or Caitlin do you want you want to win? Yeah, I mean it, 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 it's it's certainly there's there's dual component to it, but this fundamentally has to be a profitable, uh, successful, massive business. That's the reason I got into it. I think it's a huge, huge opportunity. Um, but it's an important part, I think, in running any sports organization or any business for that matter to think about the impact on the world as a, as a whole. That's what employees care about. That's what customers care about. That's what players care about. That you know, that's what all of us in this room care about. Which is, you know, we want to we want to be uh, doing well and acting acting well, treating people well, and so I think this distinction between you know doing good and, and making it a charitable activity has gotten in the way in women's sports a lot. Uh, it's a huge business opportunity. I see a nodding head, and I do want to kind of wrap this up because we're running short on time, but one last question as you look sort of into your crystal balls, so to speak. Um, what does success look like for your respective leagues down the road? It can be a metric, it can be qualitative, it can be quantitative. Your call, but for you very quickly in you know, 30 seconds or so each, like what does success look for you and for, like for your leagues down the road? You choose the time frame as well. Yeah, for us it's really that lifetime consumption of the sport. And like I said, I think that's what differentiates a popular sport to a major league sport. And that's what we're here to do and with a purpose and profit driven approach. The numbers have to work for it to be sustainable and for it to be a legacy business. Terrific. Andrew. And I think just piggybacking on that and, and a bit of what we hit on during the conversation, but um, we need to bring in new fans, right? Um, we, we certainly have a core lacrosse audience that we're continuing to interact with and bring in, but we need to expand beyond that. We need to bring in the casual sports fans. And so um, continue to look for ways like sports gambling, like championship series, like sixes. How can we continue to bring the product in front of that new fan to just give us the opportunity to bring them in? Because then our, our bet will be that they'll become lifetime lacrosse fans, but uh, actively driving that new fan number up, which we can, we, we look at over a number of metrics. Yeah, very similar. Um, but what I would say in addition is I think what we look at for success is um, that women can play this sport for their full-time profession and live with that salary and that being what they do. Um, and I think that when we get there and increase all the fan engagement and, you know, a legacy sport and lifetime of um, fans and growing that, that's going to be a real success for these athletes. 
I think major cultural and media change. Uh, you know, the bottom line is we all operate under a lot of bias. There's a lot of traditionalism. We do things the way we've done them always mm -hmm. in the past. And right now, you know, in the medium term, we need media attention and more visibility on television. ESPN's been an amazing partner to Athletes Unlimited, CBS as well. Excited to have other digital distribution platforms. But you need more room on, you know, ESPN talk shows and other places, uh, you know, for women's professional sports to, to be covered and talked about. The fans want it. Um, the ratings are there. It just needs to be now be socialized, and, 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 and people who work in those companies need to not worry about what their colleagues are going to say, uh, that they're covering women's sports or talking about them in an intelligent way, because that's, that's where the world is heading, and get on or they're going to be disrupted, and somebody else will do it. So I love this, changing the conversation, changing the culture. Mm -hmm. And this conversation is, I think, a start in that direction to getting that culture and conversation change going. So for that, I thank our panelists, Caitlin, Andrew, Jojo, and John, and thank all of you for coming. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you.